0: Uh, turn to 1 Kings 19. Uh, um, most of you probably know that one of our long, long time members uh, who sang in the choir also for many, many years, Dallas Jones, uh, went to be with the Lord this past, early this past Friday morning. Uh, there's a visitation this afternoon from 4 to 6 p.m. at the cupola on Peak Road, and then the funeral memorial service will be in here in the sanctuary at 11 a.m. tomorrow. 1 Kings chapter 19 is page 301 in one of the Bibles from the pews as we continue a series on the life of Elijah. We come now to where God calls him to basically anoint or designate his successor, who is a man named Elisha. A lot of people get confused as if those are the same two people, they're two different people, Elijah and Elisha. Hear God's word beginning in verse 19 of 1 Kings chapter 19. So he, that is Elijah, departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him. And he was with the twelfth. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, let me kiss my father and my mother and then I will follow you. And he said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? And he returned from following him and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. So ends the reading of God's holy word. Some people thought of this particular man as a complete nut. Uh, after all he was just a shoemaker and an average shoemaker at that but in the evenings after he finished his work he would study Greek and Hebrew as well as some other modern languages and he studied the book Captain Cook's Voyages to expand his horizons about the world and because of his poverty it kept him at home in his small English village, and some people said his time would have been much better spent if he had gotten a second job to help support his growing family, but the the young man's passion was not just a hobby. Early in life, he had become concerned about the unreached millions at that time of unbelievers outside of Europe. And he was trying to figure out what could be done to reach these unreached people with the gospel. And so with God's help, he slowly figured it out. He ended up going to India to serve as the first Protestant missionary to India in the modern era. And his passion and his commitment inspired an entire generation of men and women, such as Adoniram Judson and Hudson Taylor and David Livingston. Uh, It inspired these people to take up the cause of world missions, especially to the unreached peoples. And because this one impoverished shoemaker named William Carey followed his God-given passion, large parts of the world that had little or no access to the gospel today have large populations of people who profess to believe in Jesus Christ. One of the questions that if you've been a Christian for any amount of time that you've asked, and I hear it uh, frequently uh, as a pastor, and that is, how can I know God's will for my life? Now, some of it is pretty obvious what God has revealed in, in his word, but what we mean by that often is more dealing with subjective areas, like where does God want me to go to school? Should I go to school? Should I take this job or should I take that job? Should I live in this city or that city? Should I take the money I have? Should I spend this this money? Should I save it? Should I give it away? Uh, Most of us, perhaps, have a more difficult time doing the will of God than knowing the will of God. And today we will look briefly at a man named Elisha who knew the will of God and followed it, and we see that he followed at a very, very great cost. Uh, I don't want to spend much time on review. I'll just let you know this is like the ninth sermon, I believe, in this series on the life of Elijah, but there's been a drought for three and a half years that that God had said would happen, and Elijah was his messenger who took that message to a wicked king named Ahab. Uh, At the end of three and a half years, the drought's been devastating, Ahab is just as, as hard toward God as ever, and they have a contest on this mountain where these 450 prophets of the false god Baal, the god of weather, uh, were matched up against Elijah, representing Yahweh, Jehovah, the, the god of heaven and earth, and and uh, the god of heaven won the contest. and and then God extends grace to Ahab. He sends rain, but but Elijah is an expression that God is willing to work with Ahab, but Ahab remains unrepentant. Goes home and tells his wife, doesn't take any responsibility for what's happened. His wife says, hey, send a messenger to Elijah. Tomorrow at this time, he's a dead man. Elijah flees, and he, he goes uh, many, 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 many miles to the south, and he's spiritually down. And so for the past... Uh, two sundays uh, we we looked at what Elijah was experiencing and how god God comes to him and, and says, uh, "Why are you here, elijah?" And he tells him to go south to the mountain called Mount Sinai, where God had given the ten Commandments to to Moses and uh, he, he meets with God not in a, not in an earthquake or in a strong wind or in a fire, but in a still small voice God speaks to him, and Elijah's just concerned that nobody 's repented that, that all of this has been in vain and Ahab is just as hard as ever. And God tells him, I've reserved 7,000, 7,000 people who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Now, basically, he says, get up. I've got a job for you to do. I want you to anoint these two kings, one who will be king over the north and one who will be king over the south of God's people, the nation of Israel. And then I want you to to anoint the prophet who will come after you, and that is Elisha. And so in verses 19 and following Uh, that we read, that that is him going to uh, Elisha. And I want you to notice some certain things about Elisha's call. That's that's what we're going to look at for a few minutes. And one is how suddenly uh, Elisha's life changes. Uh, It was 150 miles from Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb where Elijah was when God says, go anoint Elisha. 150 miles. So though it just is covered in less than one verse, verse 19, so he departed from there, that's Mount Sinai, and found Elisha the son of Shaphat at a place called Abel Mahola. That's a, he had gone 150 miles in those few words. So it's days later when it, he when it comes to him. And Elisha's name means God has salvation. Elijah means God is my salvation. Uh, Ralph Davis, in his commentary on 1 Kings, he observes that that this particular day, Elisha probably woke up that morning thinking it was going to be an ordinary day, work on the farm, no surprises. And so what we find him doing is simply what a young man on a farm would do. He's working the ground at Shaphat's farm near abel Mahola. Who would have guessed? How could he have known that that day Elijah, the prophet, would come across that field and toss his mantle onto him. And yet, Elisha, from reading the verses, we see that he knew what that meant. He knew that he was to follow Elijah, not just for the moment, but this would be a life change. This is like a call from God. We see in the Bible that others went through similar experiences. Moses was tending his father-in-law's flocks of sheep in Exodus chapter 3 when he receives uh, a message from God that changes his life. We see Matthew in Matthew chapter 9. He was a tax collector, and they they sat in these booths, and he was doing what he did every day. He's sitting in the booth, and Jesus comes walking by and says, Follow me, and his life would never be the same. So even though God's call to Elisha and to Matthew and to Moses and many others is sudden, it was not unplanned. It was not unplanned. God had made known his decision to use Elisha to Elijah at Mount Sinai, days or weeks before. So one person wrote, God had decided all this even before Elisha was given the opportunity to decide. Sometimes his call comes suddenly like that, and he changes things in our lives, sometimes with a phone call. When I finished college, I had no idea what I wanted to do as far as a vocation. Um, I, I just lacked direction. I must say that college was the best six years of my life. But no, really, it was four and a half years. I finished it at Christmas, and I, I went back home. And I remember my mother coming in one day and said, Chip, what are you going to do? I said, I don't know, but I, I'm going to drive down to South Florida and visit a friend of mine who was an intern at a church in Boca Raton. And I wanted to visit with him just to talk. And so I, I drove down there and I had stayed about a week and, and saw him and some other friends in South Florida that were serving in church ministry. And I get back to my home in Alabama and the pastor, who, who I only met on that trip, I called and uh, he, he had my friend call and say, hey, he wants you to come down here and serve on the church staff with youth ministry. Now at that time, Uh, there were 40,000 high school students in Broward County. We were just to the north of Broward County. But that lets you know, I mean, that it was loaded, packed with young people. It's probably more so today. And so I I went and and married during that time and began to teach the Bible on a regular basis in a Sunday school class. And after a few weeks, I was out of gas. I I didn't know really how to teach the Bible except by quoting what somebody else had said. So I said, I've got to learn to study the Bible on my own. That became the motivation to go to seminary. Strictly, I it wasn't to plan to be a pastor. It was not even planned to be a teacher. It was just I wanted to learn to study and teach the Bible. We're at seminary our last year, and two men from Montgomery, Alabama, come, come to, to a meeting, and they say, you need to serve with campus ministry when you get out of seminary. And he said, we found the money to make it happen. And a woman in Birmingham I never met, never heard her name, gave some money through the the Presbyterian Church in America Foundation that funded me for two years. I went to the University of Mississippi for a year of training and then went to the University of Arkansas to begin uh, the campus ministry of our denomination, RUF. After five years of doing that, the, the pastor who had gotten me to Little Rock was Rick Canada. He moved here to become the pastor at this church. And after about five years with campus ministry, I felt that it's time to move on. I called Rick one day on the phone. And I said, uh, he had been my youth pastor when I was in junior high school or what, way back. So I'd, I'd known him for many years. And I called him and I said, what is the possibility of me coming to serve on your staff as an assistant pastor? He said, well, what do you know? I had it on my list to call you today to ask you that question. I know what you're thinking. That's one fun phone call we could have done without. <laughs> I know what some of you are thinking. Sudden. Now, uh, I, it, it seems sudden. Uh, of course, I'm not talking about a call like Elisha to be a prophet. We're a nonprofit organization, in case you wondered. But Elisha was a special case. And yet there are lessons here for all of us. And the main lesson is, as a servant of Christ, every day we need to ask, am I ready and willing and able to follow Christ? Am I willing to do what he leads me to do? Uh, and Elisha had that. We need that attitude every day. Uh, secondly, look how joyfully Elisha obeys in verses 20 and 21. I'm, right, I'm not going to reread it uh, right now, but uh, you, you can glance there. He, he, he unhesitatingly responds. Uh, he... He shows clearly that he's changing his life direction by the fact that he burns up the plowing implements. I mean, this is, this is like when someone, whether it was Cortez at Veracruz, burning the ships so the small army of six or 700 soldiers knew they were not going back to Spain... Uh, or I, I knew a man who had been to seminary and thought God was leading him into vocational ministry, and then he ended up going into law. And he was a lawyer, and I remember he came out to our school, and he was selling off his library. Now, this was pre-internet. This is when there was no digital books. And to sell your library, you were burning the bridges at that point. He was saying, I, I'm finished with that. I'm, I'm, God's leading me in a different direction. And so Elisha burns up the—I mean, he he sacrifices the oxen, gives the food to the to the people there, to, gives the meat to them to eat, and 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 burns up the uh, the, the tools. Uh, and then he says, "Let me kiss my mother and my father, and then I'll follow you." That's in verse twenty. Now, does that sound familiar? In a negative sense, uh, if it does, then you're familiar with Luke chapter nine, where where Jesus is calling people to follow him, to be his disciples, and it says in Luke 9, another also said, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. But Jesus said to him, no one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. That was a negative. It was a rebuke. Saying if you want to go back home, then then it would be like putting your hand to the plow second-guessing what's going to happen if you're always looking over your shoulder well the plow certainly isn't going to go straight and so Jesus spoke of that in a negative sense if you if you need to go back home and and take care of everything you're really not ready to follow me but in Elijah's case it's different he wants to return to say goodbye to his mother and father he's not going to return second-guessing whether to follow Elijah He's going home to burn the bridges, so to speak. So it's a declaration of commitment. It's a declaration of obedience. He's not delaying his commitment. He does not want to return home uh, to hold back, but to cut loose. And so his commitment was wholehearted. Now think of the cost of Elisha's obedience to the call. There'd be a cost in the area of affections. Let me kiss my mother and father, or kiss my father and my mother. Uh, goodbye, basically. It doesn't mean he'd never see them again, but his relationship was going to change forever with them. Uh, and often those decisions are hardest, and you know who they're typically hardest on, is the parents. And uh, a few moments ago, the the vow during the, uh, one of the vows during the infant baptism was, do you now unreservedly dedicate your child to God? Th- those are weighty words, aren't they? We're saying not just as an infant but from here on out and sad but even in the church today some of the saddest words may be when you when your young adult son or daughter comes and said i believe god's calling me to be to serve him in, in cambodia or in malawi or or wherever Oh, no, 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 no. You know, how are you going to take care of yourself? How are you going to feed your family? How are you going to to take care of me when I'm I'm old? You know, often it's the parents. Often it's the parents that have the hardest time with it. It may be rightfully so, but I want to give you some things to think about. Um, And that is that parents need to support uh, when God calls and is leading our own uh, children to do something. I don't mean that we don't question it and scrutinize it and try to knock the foolishness out of it to whatever extent, but not have a closed mind that, that oh, this can't be of God because it inconveniences me. I sat with Doug Birdsaw. Doug Birdsaw is uh, a world known in missions and he came to speak at, at, at the University of Mississippi when I was a campus minister and I was I was talking to him about his family because he and his siblings live in all various parts of the world. At that time, he was living in Japan. He was in charge of a ministry in in Tokyo. And you'd like this. I didn't say this at the first service. He said, it made me feel good when I got off the plane that there was a Japanese kid that said, hi, y'all. He'd been taught English by a Southerner. (laughs) So I asked Doug, I said, well, how did your parents handle the fact that you and your brothers and sisters literally live all over the planet? in ministry he said every week my father writes a letter i think his parents lived in colorado he said every week he sits down and he writes a letter that goes just an update on the family and he kind of holds the family together i said how long did it take you to get here he said it's 16 hours by jet to see my parents (laughs) and i was thinking i was four hours by car uh, at the time um Last fall, I read what I told some of you, and some of you read it since then. It's the best missionary biography. It's really an autobiography I've ever read. And it was about John G. Patton, the missionary to the New Hebrides Islands. And it's an autobiography. Fabulous book, just fabulous. Could not, I, one of those I grieved when I came to the end of. It. But if you've read that book, you you, you know that, that John G. Patton grew up in a very strong Christian family in Scotland. They lived in a rural area on a farm, but he had a very, very godly father and mother. And as a youngster, he, he wanted to, to minister, and so in his late teens and early 20s, he, he volunteered and he became, and like we would call, a, a, a minister to the, to the inner city and he had a ministry in the city there that had 600 people involved in it. I mean, he built this thing kind of from nothing. I think it was called the Green Street Mission. And he'd teach Bible studies and have worship services, and, and these, these poor people, and a totally unchurched, uh, he'd teach them to read, teach them to read the Bible, and it's 600 people. So then he was a Presbyterian, and the, the, the Presbyterian court the Presbytery was, was calling for missionaries to go to the South Pacific, which was primarily to cannibals uh, between Australia and Hawaii in that area. And no one would go. And he and his roommate, another guy, prayed about it for months. And, and one day John Patton said, I want to go. And the other guy said, I want to also. He got no encouragement from his professors, from his Christian leaders, from older pastors in the denomination. They all discouraged him, saying, you're obviously gifted to do what you're doing. No one's done us work like you've done here. You should stay here. But his heart, as he said, it bled, in the way they talked in, it bled for the heathen. We would say it bled for the unreached, for those who had never heard. And so he was getting nothing but negative feedback. You'll be eating my cannibals, he was told, over and over by an older man, Mr. Dixon. Well, he sought his wisdom from his parents. And my hat goes off to him. I want to read you a portion of a letter they wrote back to him about his decision. And it's kind of archaic language, but I think hang with it. Heretofore we feared to bias you, But now we must tell you why we praise God for the decision to which you've been led. Your father's heart was set upon being a minister, but other claims forced him to give it up. When you were given to them, your father and mother laid you upon the altar, their firstborn to be consecrated, if God saw fit, as a missionary of the cross. And it has been our constant prayer that you might be prepared, qualified, and led to this very decision— And we pray with all our heart that the Lord may accept your offering, long spare you, and give you many souls from the heathen world for your work. And he writes, From that moment, every doubt as to my path of duty forever vanished. I saw the hand of God very visibly, not only preparing me for, but now leading me into the foreign mission field. What was it that led him? The encouragement of his parents. And that's who Elisha says, I need to go back and kiss them goodbye. There'd be a cost not only in the area of affections for Elisha, there's a cost in the area of security. The fact that his father owned 12 pairs of oxen suggests that the family might have been rather well-to-do. At least they weren't impoverished. Maybe not the richest family in town, but certainly a degree of wealth and creature comforts. And that can be difficult to part with for any of us. We think, well, these are necessities. I've got to have this. I've got to have this. And if I, if I follow the Lord in that area, I'll have to give up this material thing or this sense of security that, that I give. So it's not necessarily the love of money that draws us, but forsaking the illusion of the security that money can give. And it is an illusion. But sometimes we think, I've got to have so much to be secure, and Elisha was saying goodbye to that. Also, he's turning away from the familiar. Some of us love the familiar. We're not people given to change, some of us here. We may be boring, but we're secure. <laughs> We've got our network, and we, we know who's who and who to go to if you need something, and, and uh, our life may be predictable. And, and because of that, the familiar can give the illusion also that it is predictable when it isn't. And so a following, and Elijah would do away with that familiarity years ago when i was on a mission trip to eastern europe i sat and spent a lot of time on the airplanes with a fellow who served with full-time missions, and he was guiding the five of us in our group and he made trips to all over the world all the time he helped train missionaries he helped assess missionaries he worked full-time with our denomination in that area at that time and when we, we got to Poland and, and Romania and places like that, and I was not prepared for the language barrier. I, was, I don't know what I was expecting, but when I got off the plane in Warsaw and couldn't read a sign, I just kind of freaked out, and I just kind of stayed next to him. Um, but he told me, he, you know, because we visited missionaries while we were there in the various countries, and he said it's very predictable what happens with Americans when they come on the mission field. At the one month mark, they usually fall apart. Emotionally, they fall apart. They panic, they get depressed, they get discouraged, they, they don't know what's happening to them. And he said, It's very predictable. We see it, and we're ready at that time. We know how to get them through it. But what's happened is the props have gotten knocked out from under them. And all the things that they take for granted from food preparation to understanding the language to knowing people, having friends, all that's gone. And he said, so we know it's coming, and and we're prepared when it does. And I thought, Elisha was getting ready to have the props knocked out from under him, and and he did it. So here's the question. Okay, y'all still with me? Okay, i got about three minutes left. Why did he do it? I asked myself this week over and over. Why did Elisha do it? If it was going to cost affections and security and, and material things and... Why did he follow Elijah? Well, for the same reason Christ said to follow him. Don't lay up your treasure here but there. Don't live for the here and now so much, the brief life, but for eternal life. Uh, That's why he did it. He had an eternal perspective. Now, one last thing, and then I'm going to read you a promise from the Bible. After the farewell dinner ends... Elisha, it ends the little passage I read down there at at the end of the paragraph. Elijah arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. What did he assist him do? Did he go assist him before King Ahab to confront King Ahab? Did he go make some predictions about no rain? Did he go with him to confront Queen Jezebel? Did he go with him to another contest on Mount Carmel? Nothing, nothing like that. Several years later, because it's several years now before Elijah died. Well, he doesn't die. We'll get to that next week, Lord will. What, how, how he's transported out of this life. But Elisha is with him for several years. I'm going to jump ahead in 2 Kings. There's a conversation between a new king, Jehoshaphat, and another one. And they're trying to make a decision. And they say, we need a man of God. We need a messenger of God. We need a prophet who can tell us what to do. And one of the guys says, I've got just the guy. His name is Elisha, and here's what he says about him. His name is Elisha, who used to pour water on the hands of Elijah. That didn't make a profound influence on you like it did on me. I can tell you are wondering, why did you read that slow? He used to pour water on the hands of Elijah. What did he do with Elijah? He helped him wash his hands. That's the call. That's what he left, the oxen and the farm and the parents and the security, to go pour water on the hands of Elijah? Apparently so. He served Elijah, a mundane, thankless task for quite a while. We find the principle in the Gospels, where God says he puts his servants in charge of a few things before they're in charge of many things. Matthew 25 says those who are faithful in small tasks within the body of Christ are the ones who are rewarded with greater opportunities for ministry. I was reading this past week about J. Gresham Machen. J. Gresham Machen was a New Testament professor at Princeton Seminary. And in 1917, when he was age 34, he, he had just completed teaching for his 11th year at the graduate level. He had the best education money he could buy at the time. His grandfather was the clerk of this session for 40 years. The family home was the 1842 inn of John Gresham, his grandfather. J. Gresham Machin was brilliant. He grew up in Baltimore, and so then he becomes a New Testament professor at, at, um, at Princeton Seminary. Age 34, World War I is going on. He's completed 11 years of teaching. And he volunteers for service to go overseas with what at that time was a very strong Christian ministry, the YMCA. And he went to France to assist the soldiers, not as a soldier, but to minister to the soldiers in France. And he knew very well that there'd be no opportunities for his scholarly pursuits. I mean, he was brilliant, he was an author, teacher, and yet he's going over there to serve these soldiers. And he knew he'd have few opportunities But he didn't know how disappointing the few opportunities were. He'd hold services, but they were poorly attended. Um, Those who attended didn't seem interested. He found that when he preached, he just put aside his polished sermons, his academic sermons, and he'd just open up the Bible, and he'd teach Bible stories and try to make some everyday application. And it was a humbling job for a brilliant seminary professor, a very respected position that he had here uh, in America. But even more humbling was his daily routine work. He ran a canteen. For those that don't know that term, it's like a uh, snack bar. He had a canteen for refreshments where soldiers could come in and and some of the people that lived in the village. And it was set up in the town of St. Mard. And St. Mard had been desolated by German artillery. And so in a damp, rat-infested house, the roof on it almost completely blown off, Machen set up his living quarters, and he set up this canteen, and he began to give out hot chocolate to the soldiers and village residents, and he tried to organize some games for them to play. Now you say, hot chocolate, that's easy. I'll go get the package, open it up, microwave it ready to go in about 60 seconds uh-uh. it was a two-hour preparation so every morning starting at 5 30 he would take these big blocks of chocolate and he had to shave them down and then he had to begin to make it and to have it ready by seven thirty a.m and when he needed supplies which was often it was up to an eight mile walk to a nearby town to where he'd place an order now he'd go on, Machen went on to become one of the key leaders in the evangelical church in the 20th century. All evangelical denominations looked to Princeton and especially to J. Gresham Machen. He started the Orthodox Christian Church, he started Westminster Seminary, and few people realized he took this lowly detour in France during World War I. So God calls Elisha, and he rises up, and what does he do, at least for the next few years? He washes, he pours the water out for Elijah to wash his hands. Now, here's the promise I want to leave you with. Um, In Mark chapter 10, uh, Jesus has said how difficult it is for a rich person to, to come into the kingdom of God. And Peter responds, see, we have left everything and followed you. They're totally perplexed at what Jesus has said. They're aghast. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this life and houses, brothers, sisters, mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. Some of you serve behind the scenes, maybe in your job, maybe in a volunteer capacity, with children, with, with, with some service. You get no applaud. You get no recognition. God sees it, and God sees that service. Let's pray together. Our Father, we, we thank you for people like Elisha and Elijah, with natures like ours. They have the same fears and concerns, and yet to see how you use them. We pray that our trust would be in Jesus Christ and him only. Know that we are accepted by your grace and your mercy, not by our own efforts. We pray in his name. Amen.